Good morning, everyone. Um, our reading t- today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 26. And you can find this um, in your service outlines. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, 
May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Last school holidays, our family decided that we were going to watch all of the Star Wars movies. We decided we would take a purist approach. So we were just going to watch the, the nine movies, not all the spin-offs. We weren't going to watch any of the TV series, although we did weaken and watch a few episodes of The Mandalorian. But we wanted to watch the nine movies. And I'd watched uh, four, five, and six before. I was really committed to those movies, loved them, but we hadn't really stayed on top of all of the other movies. So we had a follow-up question. What order were we going to watch these movies in? Would we watch them in the order they were made or in their chronological story order? Now, I can hear some of you are right on board with this dilemma. Some of you might be glazing over a little bit. So let me help you. Star Wars has nine movies made in three batches. So there were the original movies, episodes four, five, and six, then the prequel trilogy, one, two, and three, then the sequel trilogy, seven, eight, and nine. What order would we watch in? Uh, I don't know if you have a strong feeling about this. Is anyone really committed to watching in the order they were made? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yes, we have a few here. Actually, four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine. Is anyone really committed to watching in story order? One, two, three. All right, Alex, you're on your own there. <laughs> uh, you might not think it matters, but, but it really does. There are some inconsistencies if you watch in story order, I think, and some big reveals that lose their bang as well. We went with story order, so we were with Alex on this one, but I can see uh, why you might go the other way. Now, Star Wars is more complicated than most series, but any sequel leans on the book or the movie before it, and the book of Acts is no different in that respect. Although he's not named in Acts, the consensus is that Luke is the author of the book. And he's upfront in saying that this is his sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And in fact, the first five verses of the book of Acts are really a brief recap of Luke's Gospel. So as this sequel begins, Luke looks back before he pushes forward with the story. It's a bit like a new episode in a TV series where you often hear previously on whatever the series is. Let me read from the beginning of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
Now, any sequel needs a reason for being. There's always a question about whether a particular series has gone one episode too long or even one season too long. There's a really intriguing word in verse one that gives us a world of insight into why Luke wrote his sequel. And that word is began. If the book of Luke was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, the implication is there's more to come that the story of Jesus wasn't finished at the end of Luke's gospel, even though that book ends with Jesus' ascension. A commentator, Patrick Schreiner, says this, the fact that Luke thought it necessary to write a second volume implies that he thought the gospel story was incomplete without the church story. This sequel is an essential part of the author's plan to showcase the fulfillment of God's purposes. The story of the church is still the story of the Father's plan, the Son's activity, and the Spirit's empowering. So Luke's two volumes are successive acts in the sweeping drama of salvation history. And even though Jesus has ascended by the end of verse 9 in Acts 1, this book is about what Jesus continues to do and to teach we see in Acts that the work of Jesus is ongoing, even after his ascension. We see the work of Jesus present through the work of his servants, the body of Christ. We see the work of Jesus present as the Holy Spirit empowers the body of Christ. A couple of times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of the, of the Lord. He continues the work of Jesus in the world. And Jesus' work continues not just through his people as they're empowered by the Spirit. Someone else wrote that in Acts, Jesus has an obstinate presence. And you'll see that if you read carefully. So Jesus appears at key moments in the book of Acts. He shows himself to Stephen. He reveals himself to Saul on the road to Damascus, to Ananias, to Cornelius, to Peter, and then also to Paul a number of times. When Star Wars was first released at the movies a long time ago, it was just called Star Wars. About four years after that, that episode was re-released and it was renamed Episode 4, A New Hope. Acts is short for the Acts of the Apostles. And that's true to some extent, but it also could be maybe more accurately renamed the Acts of Jesus as well as Acts continuing the story of what Jesus does and teaches, we'll hear other echoes of Luke's gospel as we continue reading Acts. So in Luke's 24, at the end of his gospel, Jesus had told the disciples, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So with that ringing in your ears, let's hear again Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Acts begins with confirmation that Jesus was indeed alive, that he'd been raised from the dead. This claim at the centre of the Christian faith is confronting. It's outrageous. Luke knew that. In his gospel, right at the beginning in Luke 1, he indicated that he wanted to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us so that you may know the certainty 
of the things that you have been taught. And so here in Acts chapter 1, Luke offers us certainty in the form of many convincing proofs that Jesus was alive. So Luke's themes of fulfilment and certainty continue through the book of Acts. Acts 1 also echoes a promise that Jesus made to his disciples in the final chapter of Luke. Again there in Luke 24, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And again, we see this fleshed out in Acts 1. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. This reiteration of Jesus' promise heightens anticipation of its fulfilment, and we'll see more of that next week. So Acts begins as the Gospel of Luke finished by reminding us that Jesus' words and actions are at the centre of the story by reminding us that the startling events of Jesus' death and resurrection had been witnessed by eyewitnesses, by orienting us to the future as we wait for the disciples to be baptised by the Spirit as John the Baptist had promised way back in Luke chapter 3. And so we wait here in Acts, poised with anticipation. I don't know if you have been on long road trips very often. We regularly drive up to Sydney, as I know many of you do. It's a drive of about eight and a half or nine hours, depending on the traffic at either end. Whenever we drive, there's lots of anticipation about the upcoming holiday, of the fun of seeing family and friends. It always feels like it takes a lot of effort to pack bags and then to fit everything in the car. As we drive, there's one question that always comes sooner or later. Are we there yet? It feels much better if we've crossed the Victorian border into New South Wales before we get that question. Are we there yet? That is essentially the question that the disciples ask Jesus in verse 6. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In some ways, that's a really appropriate question. Remember in verse 3, Jesus has just spent 40 days appearing to the disciples, talking to them about the kingdom of God. But in other ways, the question shows the disciples still don't understand. And their question really has two parts. They ask about the when of the kingdom. Is it at this time? And they ask about the what of the kingdom. Will it be a restoration Of the kingdom to Israel. That idea of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel shows that the disciples are thinking back to the Davidic dynasty, the time when King David's son, King Solomon, ruled over a united Israel in a a great peaceful kingdom. They'd asked questions like this before, showing that this was their understanding of the kingdom. So imagine their shock and confusion when Jesus died on the cross. How could he be the king in a restored Davidic kingdom? Then imagine their surprise when Jesus was raised. Imagine their rekindled hopes. Maybe Jesus would indeed be the king in this kind of kingdom as they'd hoped. 
Jesus answers their question and he reshapes their understanding of the when, the how, and the where of the kingdom of God. In terms of the when, Jesus says that's not for the disciples to know. Verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But he goes on to say that something will happen now. There will be a beginning of the kingdom of God, but a different beginning to what the disciples expected. In verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the how of the kingdom of God is by the power of the Holy Spirit. This empowering of the Spirit was predicted in Isaiah chapter 32. There the prophet speaks of the Spirit being poured out from on high, of the Spirit bringing peace and happiness across the land. Let me read a few verses from verse 15. The Spirit will be poured on us from on high. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. The kingdom of God isn't the restoration of political and geographical Israel. Rather, Jesus says, it will be brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit and it will bring justice, peace, quietness, confidence. The how of the kingdom is by the power of the Spirit. But the disciples also have an essential role. They're to be witnesses, as we've just heard. They're to testify to the important things they've seen and heard. And again, this was predicted in Isaiah chapter 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. When the disciples are choosing someone to replace Judas, they look to choose someone who's been with them the whole time, who's seen Jesus' ministry from his baptism to his resurrection. Being a witness is this person's key task. We heard that in verse 22. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the kingdom will come through the power of the Spirit, through the witness of the disciples. And finally, the where of the kingdom is that the disciples are to witness in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This verse really is a bit like a table of contents for the book of Acts. And as we read through the book, we'll see this kind of spread of the gospel outward geographically from Jerusalem. The good news goes out from Jerusalem, and that's really important because of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He's promised that Abraham's children would bless the nations. That blessing will come to the nations through the kingdom of God. This commission to the disciples also fulfills a prophecy by Isaiah. In, verse, in chapter 49, the servant is given this charge. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the when, the how, and the where of the kingdom all echo God's promises through Isaiah to his people. 
So the answer to the disciples' question is probably much more complex than they were expecting. It's that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit through the witness of the apostles and throughout the whole world. The disciples have a significant role, but only because they are empowered by the Spirit. They're commissioned by Christ and they follow the plan of God the Father. Now, as we think about a a kingdom, it's clear that it needs a king, isn't it? And we've probably been talking a little bit more about kingdoms and kings recently with the coronation of King Charles III in the UK a few weeks ago. I didn't watch the coronation in full. I dipped in and out a little bit. I saw some of the media coverage. But part of what I saw involved explanation of some of the symbols in the coronation service. There were maces and swords. There was the orb. Uh, There were the amels. They look like bracelets to me, but a bit more technical. And there were other articles as well. To me, these all looked kind of fancy and ornate and a bit over the top. But the commentary explained that there was a significant meaning attached to each of these Uh, elements of the coronation service. It helped me to understand more of what was happening. Here in Acts chapter 1, in quite an understated way, we see the coronation of King Jesus. Verse 9, after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now just like in King Charles's coronation, there's some symbolism here. That helps us understand what's happening. In the Old Testament, clouds signified the presence of God or hid God from his people but showed that God was present. And clouds were also a method of movement. And so we get a clearer picture of what's happening here in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. This is what he says. I continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly one like a son of man was coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed." So what we see in Jesus' ascension is the king of all the earth being enthroned in his everlasting kingdom. As the disciples watch, they're chided by two angels. They're looking up into the sky. Two men dressed in white stand beside them and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. The angels remind the disciples that they have a mission to fulfill now that Jesus is enthroned, not to stand looking at the sky, but to witness to the ends of the earth. They live in a kingdom that has come near in Jesus. They live in a kingdom that is about the people of the king giving their allegiance to him wherever they are. They are part of a kingdom that will be seen in all its fullness when Jesus returns. We're still right at the beginning 
of the book of Acts, of Luke's Jesus sequel. This is a good moment to take stock of what has recently happened for the disciples at the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts. They have witnessed Jesus' death on the cross. They were grieving and confused for three days. Then they saw him alive again. They were still confused, but they witnessed what he did and said over 40 days. They heard his command to wait in Jerusalem until the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to them. They asked about the kingdom and they received their commission as servants of Jesus to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And they watched Jesus be taken up by God into heaven. That is a lot for them to absorb. Now they head from the Mount of Olives back to Jerusalem and they gather in a room. Luke tells us who's there. It's the 11 disciples, the women who are also followers of Jesus. Jesus' mother Mary is there and Jesus' brothers. There's also a group of about 120 believers who Peter addresses around the same time. It's not a big community, is it? It's not a big kingdom. I wonder if... Some of you know the story of the beginning of Apple computers. Apple was founded in 1976 by two college dropouts, by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And they brought to this new company a vision of changing the way that people viewed computers. Jobs and Wozniak wanted to make computers small enough for people to have them in their homes or offices. They wanted a computer that was user-friendly. Now, we take that for granted, but at the time, that was revolutionary. Uh, To give you an idea, I remember my dad, who studied maths at uni, talking about computers in his time at uni. He used to tell me that a computer would take up a whole room, all of the hardware. He would go in one day and punch computer code into a card and feed that into the computer. I don't even know how that works. And he would then go back the next day to see how the program had run. Jobs and Wozniak wanted to do something really radical, something really new, but they started very small, two men in a garage. Just like this, this is a small beginning for the church. And just like Apple, this small beginning is part of a much bigger story. The rest of Acts chapter 1 describes how the disciples saw from the Psalms the need for them to find another man to replace Judas Iscariot uh, because he had betrayed Jesus and had died. Why was that, do you think? Why did they think they needed to replace Judas? It's about the symbolism, the symbolism of having 12 disciples, 12 witnesses, When the kingdom of Israel flourished under Solomon in the Old Testament, Israel was made up of 12 tribes, 12 tribes united under one king. As the disciples are commissioned by Jesus to be witnesses for the kingdom of God, a 12th witness reminds us of those 12 tribes of the kingdom of Israel. This small beginning of the church is part of the much bigger story that God has been working out in the world, through the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, through the kingdom of God that came near in Jesus' birth and ministry. It's part of the much bigger story of God's kingdom that he continues to work out beyond the end of the book of Acts. 
And I think the end of the book of Acts is really interesting. I'm, uh, I have a terrible habit when I read novels of skipping to the end and then having to come back. Uh, but I think we have good reason to look at the end of the book of Acts this morning. The book finishes with Paul in Rome under house arrest. And the final two verses say this. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In the first century, for the disciples, Rome represented the gateway to the ends of the earth. Roads went from Rome in all directions. So by the end of Acts, we can see great progress that God has brought about for his kingdom. But there's no real conclusion. There's no wrap-up. Luke leaves the way open for the story of the kingdom to God, of God to continue. We see more in the letters of the New Testament. But even though those letters are part of a much bigger story. The story of the church today is still the story of God the Father's plan, of the Son's activity, of the Spirit's empowering. It's still the story of the kingdom of God. We are part of that story if we have put our trust in Jesus, if we have given Jesus the King our allegiance. And I really encourage you to find out more about who Jesus is if you haven't done that. Most of us are believers who are, have Gentile origins, not Jewish ones, living in Melbourne. Among us in our community at St Jude's are people who have come, believers who've come from all over the world. How exciting it is to be part of this revolutionary kingdom that God is bringing in the world. Last week, John was speaking about God's mission in the world and he shared some disturbing statistics, true statistics, but disturbing ones about the number of Christians decreasing in Melbourne in the last few years. But the good news of God's kingdom is still thriving around the world. There's some research by the Pew Research Centre in the US that shows that Christianity is the world's biggest religion. There are over 2.3 billion Christians worldwide at the moment. Apparently, it's also currently the world's fastest growing religion. It has an estimated global growth rate of 1.3% each year. Uh, Christian faith and numbers of believers are declining in Europe and in some Western countries, but apparently Christian faith is growing quickly in areas like sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. We might sometimes feel small, but God's story is big. We are part of his global and eternal kingdom as we put our trust in Christ the King. As well as being part of a much bigger story than maybe we see sitting here, we're also part of a kingdom that has changed the world. I think there's some real scepticism in our culture right now about whether Christian faith is good, whether it brings good into our society. And certainly we have to admit that Christian churches have sometimes done terrible wrongs. It's a part of our story that we should lament, that we should repent over the, the damage that sin has done. We need to make amends sometimes. We need to be held accountable sometimes. But even though there have sometimes been wrongs, the good news of God's kingdom has also transformed the world. Christians in the first century were known for taking care of the vulnerable. 
they did things like uh, taking in babies who'd been deserted on rubbish heaps and raising them in their homes. They set up hospitals, they championed education. Ideas like the equality of all people started with Jesus. Remember the picture of the kingdom of God in Isaiah 32. It was characterised by justice, by peace, by quietness, by confidence, by secure homes and places of undisturbed rest. These are all qualities that people in our world long for but don't always know how to achieve. In the scepticism of our culture about Christian faith, we can be part of changing the world. As we trust in Jesus together, we can live these qualities of the kingdom in our lives each day. This is what our church should look like. This is what, calls each of, what God calls each of us into. Peter puts it really succinctly in 1 Peter chapter 2. Live such good lives among the pagans that those, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It would be great to chat more about how we can do that together as a church, about how you can do that in your workplace, with your family, with your friends. We might sometimes feel small, but the story of God's kingdom is big. And as we trust in Christ, our individual stories become part of God's big kingdom story. In the face of scepticism, the good news of the kingdom has brought transformation into the world. As citizens of God's kingdom, we can be agents of that transformation. And as citizens of God's kingdom, he calls us to speak. Now, we're not eyewitnesses in the same way that the first disciples were. Uh, Many of you might have gifts as evangelists, as teachers, as pastors, gifts that particularly enable you to speak of the kingdom of God. If that might be you, come and talk to me or to Alex or to John. We'd love to chat with you about that and see how that might look for you in your life. Those gifts aren't gifts that everyone has, but there is something that all of us can do. We can all give an answer in 1 Peter chapter 3. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We can all give an answer if someone asks why we hope in Jesus. What will you say? Peter talks about being prepared. So let's think about this ahead of time. What will I say if someone asks me why I hope in Jesus? What will I say if someone says to me, why are you a minister in the Anglican Church? What will you say when someone asks you, why are you a Christian? Let's be prepared to answer, as Peter says, and to to think about how to do that with gentleness and respect. From two blokes in a garage, the popularity of iPhones made Apple the first company that was valued at $1 trillion in 2018. Apparently, they doubled that value two years later. The story of the kingdom of God is way more dramatic than that. It's exciting to hear that the number of Christians around the world is growing, but that's not what makes the kingdom of God true. What makes it true is the resurrection of Jesus. What makes the kingdom of God true is the ascension of Jesus. Both of those events witnessed 
by eyewitnesses. From a small beginning, the kingdom of God will one day be revealed in all its eternal glory when Jesus returns. From a crucified king and a, a small group of disciples, the church today is still the story of the Father's plan, the Son's activity, and the Spirit's empowering. It is our story. So let's pray now that we will take our part in God's kingdom here and now and that we will wait faithfully for the day when Jesus, our King, will return. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a great song that really is a prayer for God to be doing his kingdom work now. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Jesus is the King of all, that Jesus is our King as we put our trust in him. Please help us to be people who live as citizens of your kingdom now. And please help us to be people who wait faithfully in hope for the return of Jesus our King. Amen.